From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, what did you study in university? I studied English language and literature, and being at Oxford, I read a lot in the original Anglo-Saxon, I'll have you know. (laughs) What about you, Michael? First of all, I didn't know until recently there was an Anglo-Saxon language, but I studied a weird interdisciplinary mix of computer science, psychology, philosophy, and linguistics. And yet we're both at MGI. I, in fact, went on to a career writing about economics rather than medieval lords and ladies. It reminds me of a previous episode where we talked about what people do during their careers, and it isn't always directly related to what they study at university. That's true, and hopefully our studies still inform everything else that we do. And it certainly seems to have been true of today's guest. He's an MIT-trained economist, and while our conversation covers topics like the effect of globalization on labor markets, human capital, and the role of multinational corporations— He kept coming back to concepts like justice, uh, the philosopher John Rawls, the work of child psychologists, and the nature of leadership, the kinds of topics he studied as an undergraduate. And overall, it's a great reminder that the real economy is not only about dollars and euros, pounds, fiscal transfers, and global trade flows. It's really fundamentally about people. Quite right. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation, so over to you, Michael. Matthew Slaughter is the Paul Danos Dean of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth University and the Earl C. Dom 1924 Professor of International Business. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Michael, thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you. Great. Let's just start with um, you know a bit of your background. So where'd you grow up and how'd you end up doing what you're doing today? Uh, sure. I grew up in Minnesota, a little town uh, west of the Twin Cities called Minnetonka. And issues of the global economy and global public policy actually were close to home in a couple of ways. My dad was a sales executive for a metals wholesale and distributor. So one of the world's largest privately held conglomerates, Cargill, is headquartered in Minnetonka, Minnesota, just a, a few minutes from where I grew up. Tonka Trucks, so those who have children and little ones at home often know Tonka Trucks uh, for girls and boys to play with, uh, but they were invented in Minnetonka and in a, in a precursor to how the global economy evolved. Originally, all the production and things were in Minnesota, but over time, uh, as global supply chains emerged and expanded, the production of Tonka trucks moved, I think, predominantly south of the U.S. border to Mexico. And Minnetonka moccasins and rollerblades were invented there, too. So in the environment, I had buddies and friends whose parents were involved in these organizations and just kind of at home and in the community. Minnetonka is a very kind of globally connected community. And so then how did you get to, you know, get from Minnetonka to become the dean of the Tuck School of Business. From Minnetonka, when I went to college, I went to Notre Dame as an undergraduate, and I ended up majoring in a program called Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And that was a great books program where we spent a lot of time reading about the classic treatises in Western canon of philosophy and politics and issues of the nation state and justice and distributive justice were central in those. Within that, I chose economics as a major because I came to realize that a lot of the issues of the health and well-being of a, of a body politic has a lot to do with economic well-being. So graduate school in economics seemed like the natural next step. And then luckily, I went to, off to MIT to earn my PhD. And then I came to Dartmouth because I'm a trailing spouse. My wife, Lindsay, was in the same program as I, and she was a little ahead of me. And she was hired in the economics department at Dartmouth to be a professor. And then dumb luck, after we got engaged, I got a job at Dartmouth. And then Tempest Fugit. And <laughs> then here we are, and I'm dean. And Golly, that was 27 years ago, I guess. So 
so again, a, a, a large body of work on on globalization and you know aspects of our MGI research, whether it's global flows or you know thinking about you know effects on labor markets, are something that we've also looked at. But it's also a time of great change, a time of great challenge in 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 terms of globalization. You know, given your expertise and and long history on this topic, can you just describe in broad terms? What has worked? What hasn't worked? You know, what have we learned? Oof, great question. I think one of the biggest things we've learned is um, in some scholarly and more important life sense, it's not adequate to say, though there are aggregate gains for the world, for nations on average, that the distributive justice challenges of not every worker and firm and community benefiting, it, you can't just say we know that and an appropriately designed transfer system in of fiscal policy will address that. A lot of the work was more on what are the aggregate benefits? How do you characterize the nature of those flows? And it was almost an afterthought to think about, well, there might be, I don't like this lexicon, but winners and losers from opening a nation state to the rest of the world for global commerce. I think that's been one of the biggest lessons. The other thing that I think has become very clear from some of my work, but a lot of great work by other people is individuals in the United States and around the world, they're very sophisticated pocketbook voters. Uh, I think if you really want to understand um, the salience of global price volatility or the stopper salience and wage, relative wage impacts that are taught in some of the kind of classic graduate school training that a, a lot of us had, boy, go walk the shop floor of a manufacturing plant somewhere in the United States or sit around in a focus group and talk to voters in a community like Detroit or others that have been really challenged by the global economy. So I think those are two big lessons. One for those who come from a more scholarly realm and just how we think about policymaking and um, listening to our, our fellow citizens in terms of how we want to think about making a more just global economic system. What have we learned about trying to create a more just global economic system? Uh, you mentioned you know, people are sophisticated pocketbook voters. What, what do we know? Yeah, I think we've learned people want to know policies will matter for them, meaning them as workers, them as their, their families and their communities. That's one thing we've learned. And I think the second is I think collectively, a lot of us underestimated the possible magnitude of distributional pressures from freer trade and immigration and, and flows of capital. I, if I go back to when I didn't have any gray hair and I was graduating and finishing at MIT and coming to Dartmouth, a lot of the research on globalization and labor markets was focused on uh, the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, You know, the accession of Mexico into the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement. That caused so much political uh, activity in the 1992 presidential election, you know, Ross Perot running for president, getting 19.2% of the popular vote in no small part because of proclaiming that there was going to be this giant sucking sound if we signed the NAFTA of losing manufacturing capital and jobs from the United States down to Mexico. Well, no disrespect against the good people of Mexico, but, you know, the Mexican economy and labor force is rounding error when you're trying to measure the labor force of China or China plus India or what has happened in the subsequent 30, 40 years from the NAFTA in terms of the magnitude of shocks to the global economy from after the fall of the Berlin Wall, billions of people around the world wanting to accede into the global economic system and the flows of capital and people and ideas around that. I think that's been a big lesson, and I don't think we've quite figured it out in this country. I've, I've written a lot in my scholarly hat with co-authors about what I think we should do, and and frankly, a lot of it, you know, MGI is helping advance the understanding of the interplay between companies and communities and and workers. So, well, I want to pull on that thread too, but I am curious, given you know all the work that you're doing, what are the things that uh, can be done 
in order to achieve the benefits of globalization. And yet, as you said, you know, make sure that it it uh, you you know the distributional challenges are addressed. Yeah, I think one of the big things that I think a lot of work has shown is um, I think we used to think just about or mainly about I'll call it fiscal transfers kind of post-market. So thinking about taxes and transfers to build and expand what we oftentimes refer to as the social safety net. And I think those matter, those policies matter. And yet I think some of the more recent work shows by me and others, people care a lot about their ability to contribute in a meaningful way to the economic system before taxes and transfers. So I think one of the things that globalization makes very vivid is even if we were to imagine a closed economy or the US, or the, sorry, the, the world overall is a closed economy, what really determines your sense of economic opportunity and well-being is your human capital and then kind of the social capital and institutional capital that you interact with either in companies or in, a, in the infrastructure sense of, its, of a nation state. So I think we realize if you really want to address the anxieties that have emerged in the United States and many other sovereign nations, they're oftentimes not just about the individuals themselves and their current status in the labor market, it's about their future. It's about their children. It's about their communities. And that's much more about are we building an adequate amount of human capital to build the opportunity, I think is a word that we need to focus a lot more on, uh, economic opportunity, and in some sense, without sounding maudlin, economic hope that delivers the jobs and incomes and wealth that I think a lot of our earlier focus as a society and scholars were on. And some of the work I've done, for example, with an old college roommate, uh, Ken Sheevy, who's a political scientist at Yale now. We've done a lot of work showing in recent, some of our recent work, when you survey people, they care a lot more about the metaphor we used was about building ladders of opportunity. They value that more than stronger social safety nets. They don't think the latter are irrelevant, but they really, what they are really seeking for themselves and their communities and their families is human capital development. So they think they can thrive in globally connected companies or through the supply chains and so forth. So if someone is made unemployed because of globalization and some sort of competition, you know, how do we support their livelihoods and their families? Say more about what it means to create ladders of opportunity. What, what are the sorts of things that fit in that category? Yeah, this is one where I think, I think there's an ample amount of empirical research that shows at what levels of human development that you get really high social returns from certain types of, of human capital development. So if I use the metaphor again of the light of opportunity, a first important rung would be very early childhood uh, human capital development. There's a lot of research from you know, Nobel laureates like James Heckman and sociologists and, and pediatricians and child psychologists that shows there's an amazing amount of human capital development that happens before the age of approximately five or six. So what Ken and I proposed would be universal early childhood education from ages zero through five for every child born in America. And as we know, given some of the inequalities that we're talking about, that already happens in a lot of families. But some of the recent research shows just the social returns to those early interventions on developing literacy, developing social skills, developing executive function skills, and indicators like how many unique words does a child hear at home spoken or read out loud before they turn five or six is astonishingly predictive, those types of indicators of their performance in primary and secondary and tertiary education in the labor market. So that'd be a first rung. I think a second rung is in our formal education system in the United States, not every young adult who graduates from high school goes on to college. 
as a lot of us know, only about a third of the American labor force today has a college degree or higher. There's about 100 million Americans in the labor force today that have uh, do not have a college degree. At most, they may have a, a, an associate's degree or some college. So I think the economics is quite clear that the returns, private and social, to at least an associate's degree through a community college of some kind are high. So that would be the second rung of fully paid for, not just the tuition, but sort of the living expenses, because the research says a lot of people drop out of community colleges, not so much of the tuition per se, but everything else to make it work. So this notion of ongoing lifelong education informs our idea of a third rung. And we propose that every 10 years, every American in the labor force who does not have a college degree or higher would be able with their employer to have a $10,000 tax credit for their employer, where the employer would get that tax credit if they provided some sort of ongoing training to that employee. And uh, we were purposely agnostic about what that training might be. It might be something in-house. It might be an online course. It might be something in person. It might be what in the business school world we traditionally think of as executive education. But the companies have a best sense and the workers themselves about in that match that they may have as they move through the decades of their time in the labor force. Let me, with that aperture a little bit, you know, you, you just started to talk about, you know, the tax credit to corporations. Well, we certainly have heard from corporate executives that the demands being placed on, on corporations have changed or perhaps even increased in the 21st century. Can you reflect on that? Yes. I think what sometimes the moniker that's used is that uh, a lot of CEOs are being asked or choosing to think about their capitalist system as stakeholder capitalism rather than shareholder capitalism. I actually applaud and think very highly of, of the executives who recognize if all I'm thinking about is shareholder value at different time horizons, I actually won't even maximize shareholder value because I'm not thinking about the contributions to that of importantly my employees but customers, suppliers, and the communities in which we operate. I'm convinced of the empirical evidence, not just about the distributive justice, I think it's the right thing to do because corporations are a social construct in Western civilization with legal rights that are provided by the state to manage risk and allow risk taking, which is, has been phenomenally empowering in driving productivity growth and, and helping create whole new industries and so forth. But I think it's simply sound management leadership. I think there's a, an emerging amount of empirical evidence that shows Businesses and the business leaders that think this way, they tend to gen outperform in terms of productivity growth and sustained profitability companies that don't think this way. It makes, I think, being a CEO or other leader in an organization more complex because by definition, you've got multiple stakeholders and you've got to come up with measures in different ways to um, balance those considerations. If I hearken back to my undergraduate days, I think that's, that's, that's the richness of political economy. And it's the reality of where we are, especially in this unfortunately more fractious early part of the 21st century. The skewness of growth of income and wealth in a lot of sovereign nations that the collective global economy has been delivering, I just think it presents to any business leader an opportunity to say, right, how can I try to create more opportunity and have more of my stakeholders be engaged with all that dynamism and that success? How has it changed what you teach at Talk? It's fundamentally changed when I teach at Tuck. So uh, serving as dean, I can't teach as much as I used to, but the elective I created a number of years ago, partly based on my time in public service in, in the US government in Washington, is I teach a course called Leadership in the Global Economy, where we convene mock congressional and parliamentary hearings on the what I think are some of the most salient global business policy issues of today, 
And what the students have to do, we pretend in, in a U.S. context, we pretend that we're either the Senate Finance Committee or the House Ways and Means Committee. Students have to prepare testimony, and then we have a selection mechanism. We hold a hearing, and then their classmates cross-examine them, and I kind of play the committee chair. So the topics, uh, I will teach it again coming up in the winter term here, but when I did it last fall, the topics were the U.S.-China trade war, global warming and climate change, should the U.S. government pay reparations to Black Americans to offset the legacy of systemic racism in America? And um, do we need a new deal for globalization because of these sorts of issues of inequality that we've been discussing? And I tell the students, you can't be yourself today. You have to, leaders have to envision a tomorrow that's different from or better than today. So they have to envision either being a CEO or leader of some organization today, or they have to envision a future where they are the leader of some organization. It's great. The students have to own it, and they do. It's, it's the heart of the class. And, and, and yet, I think if I go back to an earlier time where I taught what I would call things more focused on just the economics of the global economy, it's different. And so how, how does the modern business leader handle this? I mean, there was extreme clarity of purpose when you were looking at a Chicago School shareholder value view. And now all of these demands are being placed on corporations and their leaders. You're educating some of the premier leaders in the world, but how, you know, you and, and the school, what's your advice? Uh, yeah, so it's a great question. I start with whether you like it or not, if you aspire to be a leader of a global organization today, this is, you need to think about these issues in our world. I think part of what's interesting that's become very clear is um, the characteristics, the talents of a global leader today are quite different from what they used to be. My wife's grandfather used to say, we've been given two ears and a mouth for a reason. That's true in a lot of relationships in life, but I think it's increasingly true for, for the leaders of global organizations. They need to have strong empathy. They need to build inclusivity. They need the, the nature of communication is more complex because they have more stakeholders who are seeking more and more different messages. So I, I will say, not to sound like a commercial for talk, but again, it comes back to our mission statement of developing wise, decisive leaders. The aptitudes of wisdom and decisiveness of which we speak are being a lifelong learner, confident humility, empathy towards others, judgment to, uh, to make those decisive moves. Yes, you need to know debits and credits and the capital asset pricing model and a lot of the foundational disciplines that undergird any business education. Those are still essential. And yet, I think beyond that, what's required to truly become a transformational manager and leader is more and more complex than it used to be. And um, our students aspire to have those capabilities. So it's, it is a more integrated and more complex world than it used to be. Uh, and yet, I think that just gives us all, I'm a Tigger by disposition. So in the Winnie the Pooh characters, so the, I've just, the Tigger in me says, wow, that's great. We need to get the right people with the right skills, whether it's MBA candidates or whether it's someone who, fingers crossed, might take advantage in the Michael Chewy presidency of, of our lifelong ladder opportunity. Thank you. I'm, I'm also curious, uh, you know, you're also an expert on multinational corporations. You have a global view. To what extent does the uh, move towards stakeholder capitalism, how does that vary around the world? I think some countries have been thinking about these issues a lot longer than the United States. Again, I'm a U.S. citizen. I think if I look to some of the Nordic countries, there's been more of an awareness of what it means to be a corporation within a body politic and, and the contributions, whether it's explicitly through the tax system and the corporate taxes or the integration of those 
uh, some of the multinationals in some of the Nordic countries, I think of Germany, in the education system and in some of the public policies to build opportunity. Uh, I think they're a little bit farther along than the U.S. Uh, and then there's some other countries where it's just not as salient of an issue. I mean, if you go back to, you know, the classic political economy and philosophy, philosophy treatise of the 20th century, John Rawls's a theory of justice. You know, one of the th- themes he he analyzed and and talked a lot about was how much in a given society individuals and the organizations will trade off basic economic goods against some higher order values. And so different societies are at different points on that. I think multinational companies uh, in the United States and many other countries are oftentimes perceived to be part of, part of a problem, a deep problem of you've got rapacious CEOs who don't care about anything other than profits and their activities are simply exporting jobs outside of the home country to the detriment of everyone else. Can we find anecdotes where multinational companies expand abroad and that substitutes for what they do in, in their home countries? Absolutely. And yet, the peer review research time and again continues to find that on average, expansion abroad by multinational companies tends to complement, not substitute for what they do at home. More hiring abroad tends to trigger more hiring back in the home country and more research and development. And so there tends to be actually this positive association with expansion around the world of multinationals. And again, the MGI has done a lot of the leading work on this, in addition to some of the academic studies. If you look at the productivity distribution of companies, cause and effect runs in both directions, but the multinationals tend to be among the most dynamic, the most productive, the highest average wage, the highest innovation companies on the planet. And when I come back to public policy, I oftentimes frame it as, how can we get more companies to have their performance like multinationals and in fact become multinational? That's the key policy question in terms of building opportunity, building the human capital for people in part is going to mean you get more amazing companies that get founded or scaled up of existing firms that have those high performance features that lead to the good jobs and good wages that we're all seeking. If we can pull on that thread a little bit, and also the the connection between multinationals and the labor market, uh, you write a column with another Matt, Matt Reese. And on, on one of the latest ones, you talked about uh, an India-based corporation opening a facility and hiring people in Indianapolis, which I presume is not just because of the similarity in the names. Uh, what, what happened there? Uh, so Infosys is a, an India-based multinational, and that early in India's opening to the global economy after India's balance of payments crisis in the early 1990s, they realized they're opening the advance and creation of the internet. They could develop a competitive advantage as a company of providing services to large global multinationals to perform some of the more moderate task tradable services activities around accountancy, around human resources management. And so Infosys was one of these Indian multinationals that really grew from India to provide these outsourcing services to a lot of Western-based multinationals. And yet, like a lot of global multinationals, their competitive advantage evolved over time. They realized as more competitive rose in that, they realized they could create more value for their clients by actually providing a broader range of services that were higher talent, more complementary to what those firms were already doing. And Infosys realized, like a lot of firms, you hear time and again, the scarcest constraint on their strategic intent is having the right talent to, to bring that strategy to life and to implement it. And so they're one of what oftentimes gets called these insourcing companies in an American lexicon who they're foreign-based multinationals who establish and expand operations here. And they've realized proximity to clients in the U.S. matters. They've realized that the risk-taking, the pools of talent, um, the dynamism of the U.S. economy, some of the deep sources of comparative advantage for the United States, they wanted more access to. 
So it's kind of you mentioned this piece with Matt Reese, our slaughter and Reese report, the most recent one, just talked about that as an example of when we're we see in the United States a lot of individuals. It's oftentimes been uh, termed uh, this nice phrase, the Great Resignation. A lot of individuals post pandemic in the United States are contemplating the what labor they want to supply in some uh, economic sense, at what price and where and how. And some of the most nimble and dynamic companies, again, we know are the, are the global multinationals. And Infosys is an example of one of the foreign-based multinationals that adds a bunch of vibrancy to the U.S. economy. You mentioned, you know, this is a story about tradable services. You know, we're talking in late 2020-21. There is a lot of discussion about supply chain issues, primarily in physical goods. Um, and lots of people are talking about it and writing about it, all those sorts of things. I'll just open that up to you as a globalization expert. You know, what's going on here and what do we think is going to happen? Global supply chains, we have known, generate great efficiencies. But that efficiency of uh, lower prices and costs, wider variety, enabling a lot of firms to have had what was oftentimes called a just-in-time production and inventory management system, that was a finely optimized system. But ops people, economists know that optimization can have perturbations that are highly nonlinear. And what we've experienced, I think, both on the demand and supply side amidst the pandemic are these perturbations to the initial system that have led to wildly nonlinear results. So on the demand side, I think not everybody anticipated that when um, the pandemic hit and there was going to need to be the supply shock of withdrawal of a lot of production of services, non-tradable services, that households, either from their own balance sheets or with the unprecedented fiscal supports, would dramatically shift and increase their demand for goods. So a lot of the global supply chains involve transactions of goods, intermediate inputs and, and capital goods and final goods. But a surge in the world's demand for goods, that surge in demand for goods was unexpected. And then we continue to see supply side shocks in the global supply chains, understandably from a public health perspective, but fewer people crossing borders. You see at key nodes in global supply chains of ports, shutdowns that have been unprecedented because of public health requirements. So in certain sovereign nations where one or two COVID cases will shut down ports for 48 or 96 hours. And in the United States and other countries, I think we've realized the fragile optimization around some of the domestic supply chain linkages. And this gets back to the labor shocks, again, that we were talking about a few minutes ago. So you give me demand shocks, you give me supply shocks in a very finely optimized global system. And you see shortages, you see rising prices in ways that are oftentimes hard to predict. But if you go back to the academic research, we kind of knew this could be possible. We simply hadn't had this confluence of demand and supply shocks that the pandemic tragically has brought upon us. And I think some of the MGI research actually suggests that these types of perturbations are surprisingly and will be surprisingly common going forward. Totally. I think this is one of the, among the many cool things that uh, MGI does is pointing that out. And I think, let's remember the many massive benefits that the globalization of production has generated. Again, raising average standards of living as literally billions of people have been acceding into the global economic system directly or indirectly, their participation in these global supply chains has been um, central to that. And it's difficult to think that those underlying forces are magically going to go away. Not that we don't need to think about what public policy costs that fragility generates. And it kind of comes back to the basic issue we started this great conversation on, which is 
how do you try to ensure that the economic impacts and opportunity from this creative destruction of globalization is the opportunities as broad as possible and whatever the right sets of social supports to offset the the, the dynamic pressures that they're there. So we, we had, as we were talking, I think there's been a secular growth in pressures on creating more opportunity that the United States, if I had the magic wand, we would have been doing more earlier on the public policy side. I've written a lot of this. I think the pandemic has just brought that home to recognize, wow, the global economy, as amazing as it is for the world overall and on average, it's got complexity to it that we need to be thoughtful about in terms of what forward-looking public policies we have. Well, we have so many more other things that we could talk about, but uh, I, I want to make sure that uh, we save some for our next conversation. So with that, if you don't mind, why don't we do a lightning round of uh, quick questions, quick answers for you, and you can feel free to pass at any point. All right, here we go. What's the greatest underappreciated benefit of globalization? The empowerment of human spirit. People can dream in a way that they didn't know possible when they see what's happening around the world. What's the greatest underappreciated risk or cost of globalization? If people don't feel empowered to embrace that dynamism, they're afraid, understandably, and how that fear can manifest itself in the body politic. What's one policy you would recommend to improve the benefits of globalization for the following regions? The United States. Build a lifelong ladder of opportunity for every American. The European Union. Foster more dynamism in startups in the business sector. The United Kingdom. Undo Brexit. China. Embrace openness of all kinds. This is going to be overly general, but developing countries. Embrace openness of all kinds. And by that, I mean the, of the human spirit, too, and human rights. What is the most important opportunity CEOs of multinational corporations should keep in mind in the 21st century? If you articulate a compelling strategy for all of your stakeholders, you will have the talent you need to achieve beyond your wildest aspirations. What's the greatest risk CEOs of multinational corporations should keep in mind in the 21st century? How different the relationship is with your key employees. They're expecting you to be an organization that is engaged in the world's wickedest problems, not just to generate shareholder value. If you had one topic that corporate boards should spend more time on on their agendas, what would it be? Engagement with public policy in a way that is supporting national and cross-country goals. There's only so much time for corporate boards to meet. So then what topic should corporate boards spend less time on? Next quarter's profit goals. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? The magic wand is powerful enough, either playing tennis on the ATP tour or uh, on the PGA tour of golf. You've got to choose tennis or golf. Golf. Why? You learn an immense about, about a human's character when you walk around to golf with them. What would be your one piece of advice for listeners of this podcast? I know the world is fractious and hard, but be a tigger. Find the optimism and channel that in yourself and those around you. Matt Slaughter, thanks so much for joining us. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. <laughs>